Good morning, everybody. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science here at the University of Sydney and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. And the United States Study Centre, as the University of Sydney does, uh, stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This morning, it's another special treat for the United States Study Center. I'm just astounded by the way that COVID has turned adversity into opportunity. This uh, willingness of, of, of great friends of the United States Study Center and of Australia, frankly, to uh, join us, give up an hour of what is typically an evening for people in the East Coast of the United States, as it is in this case. And it's this time it's Charlie Cook who I uh, call the, the Dean of American Political Analysts. Uh, of course, the founder, editor, publisher of the Cook Political Report, and also affiliated with the National Journal Group and NBC News. Um, and, and I wasn't the first one to refer to uh, Charlie as the Dean of the Washington Press Corps. Um, that uh, that honor uh, first was uh, bestowed by the great, uh, but late, I'm afraid, David Broder uh, of, of the Post. Uh, um, those of us in political science have been stealing liberally from Charlie for years, and, and maybe it's been a little bit of traffic going back the other way. But, but if you really wanted to know what was going on with congressional races, um, political scientists, um, you could do no better and still can do no better than, and, than relying on Charlie's uh, and the Cook reports more broadly, uh, its ratings of congressional districts. And that's how, as a, as a card-carrying, empirical, data-munching political scientist, I first got exposed to Charlie's work like thousands of, of scholars um, around the world. Uh, in 2010, in, in recognition of that great service, uh, perhaps uh, uh, not always uh, appropriately acknowledged, frankly, but the APSA, the American Political Science Association, uh, did acknowledge uh, those linkages between Charlie's work and, and scholarship in the academy, bestowing on Charlie the, the Kerry McWilliams Award. And in 2013, Charlie uh, served as a resident fellow at the Institute of Politics at Harvard's Kennedy School. And um, Charlie, of course, has visited Australia uh, on several occasions. And in some of the dialogues in civil society that are, that are, that, that are, are frequently, uh, when, when travel permits, um, uh, Charlie's been a regular attendee at, at fora like those in, in across the United States over the years um, and counts himself as a proud friend of Australia. Um, but not a fan of Foster's, as it turns out. But that's okay. That makes you a... AB <laughs> and Crown Lager are excellent, excellent. <laughs> that attests to your bona fides down here, Charlie. Not a problem at all. And, and look, um, to open up the conversation today, um, I, I'm delighted that we'll be joined by Bruce Wolpe, a uh, senior fellow here at the United States Study Center. Bruce, of course, um, a regular prodigious commentator on US politics for us at the center. You can't miss Bruce in various Australian media outlets. Uh, Bruce, of course, uh, worked on the Hill in DC, knows DC inside and out, and indeed, uh, hand on heart. That's how we have Charlie with us today, uh, another Bruce Wolpe special. And we're, we're so indebted to Bruce and his deep networks back in the United States. But he also worked here in Australian politics, uh, serving uh, Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Uh, as her chief of staff uh, after uh, the Prime Minister uh, left public office. Um, so, Bruce, I'm going to hand over to you to, to kick off the conversation with Charlie. Thank you. I'll be back in a minute. Okay, thank you. Uh, Charlie, all of Australia sends a warm hello to you and Lucy, and we look forward to the time when you can 
return to these shores and, uh, and uh, conquer them once again with your well, expertise and knowledge. Yeah, we've known, we've known Bruce and Leslie for probably 30 years, give or take a couple, and uh, just dear, dear, dear friends. So anyway, looking forward to be able to, to come back uh, come back soon. I'm, I'm looking forward to go anywhere, actually. <laughs> Me too, and I want to get to Maine, where you are right now. It's 100 miles away, yeah. Yeah, we're <laughs> hiding here from, instead of Washington. But let, let's just set this up this way. What is the, the big question is, what is your sense of the mood of the United States, the American people now going into this election? Is this a pandemic election? Is it a pandemic plus economy election? Is it a referendum on President Trump? How's Joe Biden doing? So paint the landscape for us as we go into this. Sure, you know, whenever we have a presidential election and there's, there is no incumbent running, that's a choice election. But when we have incumbents running, it's, it's a referendum. You know, a referenda on, on the, the incumbent. And that is particularly, I mean, it's always true, but it's particularly true with Donald Trump. Because if you think about it, for the last four years, uh, you know, for better or worse, he has been like the center of a sol the political solar system in the United States, where everything has revolved around him one way or the other. And so I don't think, I, you know, the question is just how relevant is Joe Biden to this election? But it really is, I think, up or down up or down on, on President Trump. And that's happening, you know, it's, it's, it's really people, people I think are bringing a lot of baggage in from 2016. They, we, there's a tendency to look at each election through the lens of, you know, whatever the last election was about. And this is totally different. It's, it's a referendum on, on the president. Uh, that, that Donald Trump was the, uh, the candidate of change in 2016, and Hillary Clinton was the change, candidate of the status quo. Uh, now, uh, President Trump is the status quo, and he's got a record to defend. And, you know, when you think about his job approval ratings, and, you know, job approvals are the best indicator of how an incumbent president's going to do. I mean, in his first year in office, uh, President Trump had a, for the entire year, his Gallup job approval rating for the year was 38% in his first year in office. For the, that was the lowest of any president in post-war, elected president in post-war history. Uh, for his second year, he only went up two points to 40, uh, which was the lowest second year of any elected president in post-war history. And then his third year, he was the second to the bottom. Actually, Jimmy Carter slid in under him at 37, but he only had a 42%. And, you know, it's very simple. Every, every elected incumbent in, you know, history of polling that had a 50 or higher got reelected in the Gallup, you know, the last Gallup before the election, 50 or higher. And uh, everybody under 48 lost, or 47 and under lost. And the one that was in the middle was George W. Bush. And Bruce, you, you and Simon remember well that uh, election day in 2004 when, uh, you know, for a while, there were a lot of people thinking that John Kerry had won. So this is a referendum about President Trump. And it doesn't mean that the coronavirus and the, the economic downturn haven't affected things. But the structure of this race really isn't different, any different than it was the day, uh, the day Biden got in and, you know, uh, April 25th of last year. Uh, Biden has been so, it, it's so interesting, Charlie, but Biden has been so not very visible. I mean, Trump is able to get on Air Force One, go from airport to airport in swing states, uh, regardless of the uh, public health issues presented by the virus. He has thousands of people packed together. I'd say just looking at news coverage, it's like 70% Trump plus, 30% or, or, or minus Biden. So he's not getting anywhere near the airtime. But he still has this steady eight to ten point lead in the polls and and in the swing states. It looks like 
between four and six points in key swings. Why is Biden able to do so well, just given the lack of um, fundamental, you know, the fun why is his fundamental so good when he's not really connecting with the public in the same way that Trump is able to? Well, I think it's a couple of things. First, you know, as I said, this is a referendum about Trump. It's, it's, a, it's a lot about Trump and it's not much about Joe Biden. And that's not knocking Biden. It's just this is just the way the race goes. But the secondly is that it's pretty clear the American people don't want a normal campaign. They don't want someone knocking on their door. They're not going to go to rallies. They're, they disapprove of these kinds of things. And I think the Biden campaign, uh, you know, in, on one hand, they're, they're respectful of that. But two, they're way ahead. I mean, why would they, you know, uh, you know, all that time that the vi former vice president was sitting in his basement, uh, it wasn't hurting anything. Um, you know, it was kind of a prevent defense. So uh, um, I don't think it's hurt him a bit. And, and interestingly, you know, the, the vice president's known to stick his foot in his mouth and, and he's called himself a gaffe machine. I would argue, I've been watching him since 1973, his first year in the Senate. I would argue that Joe Biden has probably made fewer gaffes this year than any of the last 30 years in American that he's been in American politics. So, um, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, but, but he's getting out a little bit, but I think they want to control the situation and that's not, and the American people don't want a traditional campaign. Uh, I agree with that. And so uh, it's kind of weird that Joe Biden emulates uh, McKinley and has a front porch campaign. It's kind of successful. But in the, in the debate, what do you think uh, Biden and Trump are going to try and do to each other? Well, I guess my question is, late breaking news, the Supreme Court, the New York Times a couple of hours ago on taxes. Do these things, do they, any risk of changing the fundamentals from these big, big stories? I don't think so, Bruce. Uh, the president has a base of about 40, 41, 42 percent and that anybody that hasn't defected him over any of the thousand you know, negative stories that have come out over the last four years, anybody that hasn't defected yet, I don't think they're going to. I mean, I literally don't think that there's anything in the, that, that could be in a Woodward book or in the New York Times or anyplace else that his base, and part, part of this is they're just rock solid. They're cult, you know, it's cultural, it's identity politics. But the main thing is that um, um, he doesn't, he, he is not, he, he's not shown any capacity to enlarge beyond that point, number one. Number two, I think it's doubtful that he can get up to the 46% he got last time. Mm -hmm. And 46% isn't enough because you're going to have, you know, the third party independent and write-in votes probably going to be half of the 6% that it was last time. So, uh, I, I, I think between the coronavirus, and I'd love to talk about this more, but the coronavirus and the loss of that economic tailwind, I think together it's completely compromised his ability to get that 5-10% that's in the middle. Uh, and I think they've been gone really since, uh, since the beginning of, of May or June. I mean, I think that's when you saw the movement in this race go from a 46-point Biden lead on average to now eight to 10 in, in the better polls. And, and does that explain, Charlie, why uh, the country, 70% feels the country's on the wrong track? And, and that that's, looks like a pretty devastating number to me for a reelect situation. It is that um, when you look at uh, uh, the last 10 presidential elections, in five of them, the party in the White House was kept in. And in five of them, 
they, American people basically voted for change. And if you look at the, the five where they voted to keep a party in power, it's the, I think the average right direction was about 42 and the average wrong track was about 49. But in the five that they threw out the party in the White House, regardless whether it was an incumbent or not, it was like 20 something right directions, basically 70 wrong track, which is basically where, you know, where it is right now. So this is a classic change election. And uh, one of my colleagues and Simon said so much nice things about our newsletter. Um, and I've got a great team of five people working with me, but one of my colleagues, Amy Walter, was uh, talking to a Republican strategist and he was talking about polls in five or six states that he had just looked at. And he said, there's no, and, and the movement away from the president and, and away from Republicans. And he says, there's no one single issue. It's who can make my life normal again. <laughs> and if that's not an election that's sort of crying out for change, I, I've never seen one. Yes. And uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't personally think that this is going to be terribly close. I really don't. Wow. Simon, over to you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, and just on that note, Charlie, then if you are of the view that this isn't a particularly close election, then could you perhaps, I mean, I think any Australian on this call is, is sort of going to know roughly the answer to this question, but um, could you read us into why it is, therefore, that so many election analysts, uh, myself included perhaps, are, are, are walking on eggshells, um, are, are tiptoeing around... Um, you know, I heard you on an earlier a podcast uh, in the States a couple of weeks ago saying this, this just isn't close. Um, and if it were any other election, um, we'd be describing it as such. But, but many, many analysts out there are, are quite tentative um, about their, their, their uh, forecast right now. Why, why is that the case? Well, I, I mean, I think with Democrats and liberals, they're, I mean, the, 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 it's become a cliche almost that they're suffering from PTSD, you know, from the November 2016 election, both the, the shock, the shock of the shock of, of the loss, as well as the consequences of the loss. But for political reporters and analysts, um, it was a PTSD from being wrong, from the shock of being wrong. And after that election, I spent a lot of time starting with uh, about four o'clock in the morning of election night, walking back from NBC uh, in New York to my hotel and thinking I've devoted my entire adult life to something I clearly don't understand it at all. But I've spent a heck of a lot of time looking back and thinking about 2016. And I think we figured it out. And I don't think any of it really is applicable here, but it's a fear of being wrong again. And, you know, Alan Greenspan talked about irrational exuberance in the markets. And I think right now it's an irrational degree of caution that everybody in, or that most of the people in my business, uh, at least publicly, are professing. And, you know, privately they're starting to wonder, a lot of them are starting to wonder if this is over, but, but they're, they're just petrified of being wrong again. And it's almost like they're being superstitious or something. But I, I don't think... Um, I, you know, I, I sit, sit around watching, looking at polls all day long, and yeah. I'm just not seeing signs that this thing is closing at all. And I question whether anybody, a Democrat or Republican, can have a lead much bigger than Joe Biden has 
given the hyperpartisanship we have and the the low the high uh, high yeah. floor and low ceilings we have, this is about as wide as it can get. Yeah, no, good point. And so, just back to sixteen before we went live, Charlie, we were your your read on actually why state polls in particular, and in in a few states, were really mattered for the for the electoral college call. Um, why a few state polls in particular were not just wrong, but like they were really wrong. Like Wisconsin, the poll average there was off by a lot. Um, could you just briefly for our Australian listeners again, rehash why that was wrong, but why you're confident or more confident or have some confidence that those errors aren't going to be replicated this time in swing state polling? Yeah, I mean, there's this, the, the, this, you know, a lot of people are sort of adhere to this shy Trump voter that there are people, a large number of people who just lie to pollsters and won't admit that, that they're going to vote for Trump. But of course, that doesn't really explain the people that live in heavily Republican areas and Trump places where President Trump or Donald Trump was winning big where that disparity still existed as well. But what, when, 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 as you know, when the American Association for Public Opinion Research and the Pew Research Center went back and looked at the polling, national and state, what they found was, you know, the national polls, as you know, where it's only, they were off by 1.1 percentage points, you know, 3.2 is what the average real clear politics and the, the final vote was 2.1. But what they found was it was a, not a shy Trump voter, but it was a undersampling, almost a systemic undersampling, upper rep, underrepresentation of whites with less than a college degree and an overrepresentation, oversampling of whites with a four-year college degree. And historically, that wouldn't have made that big a difference. But now with this realignment that we're seeing with working class blue-collar whites who have left the Democratic Party moving towards the Republican Party and upscale college-educated suburban voters, particularly women moving the up opposite direction, that gap is big. And it explains what happened in the national. I mean, they went back and looked and checked who was interviewed before the election and ran those by the voter files from the secretaries of right. state and found that there, there was just an undersampling. Also, I had noticed, and, and, and those three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, had a disproportionately large number of those non-college non whites. Uh, also, I noticed during the primaries that Trump always overperformed in heavily industrial manufacturing areas, places that had had huge job losses over the last 40, 50 years, very receptive to his message. And finally, those three states had very, Pennsylvania particularly has changed since then, but they had very, very restrictive laws about early voting, vote by mail. And so it was overwhelmingly an election day vote and in an election where the late deciders went overwhelmingly towards Trump, any state where almost all the vote was on cast on election day was going to do better, would likely do a lot better for Donald Trump than other states where, you know, uh, half the vote was early, over half. Yeah. So I, I, think, it, I think it's fixed. I, I really do. In which case, yeah, right. So a, a seven-point lead, eight-point lead almost for Biden in Wisconsin now can be believed or <laughs> well, we have more well, confidence in it than, than as it turns out we should have had in the same, you know, same well, state of the race. Yeah. Okay. To be honest, I think there's a lot of blaming those three states. Absolutely. They were wrong. But I think a lot of people had conflated the electoral college with the national popular vote. And because we had gone from 1888 till 2000 with lots of close elections, but they all both went the same way. Yeah. And then even in 2000, 
Now, Gore won the popular vote, but it was only a half a percentage point. It was basically a half million votes nationwide. So it was kind of, people looked at it as like a, a statistical anomaly or something. And it wasn't apparent until election night how efficient Republican votes are and how inefficient Democratic votes are running up the score in California, New York, and Illinois. Yeah. So that a Democrat probably does need to be ahead nationally by three or four percentage points in order to be start feeling comfortable about the Electoral College but an eight to 10 point national lead and pretty strong leads in all six of the key battleground states or four out of six, I would say, um, you know, I, 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 I you know, maybe, maybe I'll be wrong, but I don't think yeah. so. Hey, um, the other thing that I guess, you know, again, uh, those of us that watch this super closely uh, are so aware of this, but again, for a, for a more general audience, um, um, the 2018 midterms, um, I don't, my own view is that not enough people understand the consequence of, of what happened there. Um, and, and so Charlie, what happened in the 2018 midterm and, and what does it portend for 2020? It was like two different elections or elections in two different countries. And for in the red conservative Republican states, the states that Trump won, you know, a third of the U.S. Senate is up every two years, but it always matters which third. And the third that was up in 2018 was overwhelmingly in red states and where Democrats had a net loss of two Senate seats in those states. And so it reflected the popularity that President Trump had in those states. But in the rest of the country, which is a lot bigger, um, where suburbs were the, were, were the driving force and Republicans lost, uh, you know, 40 seats in the House, many of these seats that they had had for, you know, close to 100 years. So you had suburbs of Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Kansas City, Oklahoma City, Richmond, Virginia, as well as outside the Sun Belt that were going Democratic because the suburbs, I mean, President Trump is just toxic in sort of mid to upscale suburbs. And that was an ugly election. But the other thing is, it had it was all, it was close to a presidential turnout. Yep. It was the highest ter voter turnout that we'd had in any midterm election since 1914, and and the previous one had been the lowest since 1942. So yeah. this was like mind-boggling. But this was uh, we we had uh, I'm not sure if this is politically correct or not, but um, I think you had a lot of voters uh, in that election, people that were for Donald Trump in 2016. Man, they were for him. And even if God had told them that he was going to lose, they were still going to vote for him to make a statement. But you had a lot of voters that were never going to vote for Donald Trump, but they weren't excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. I mean, the ambivalence, they, they, you know, that, that she had picked up 25 years of bag, political baggage along the way. And after the Billy Bush Access Hollywood tape, uh, you know, I think you know, most people thought the election was over. Yeah. And so if you didn't really want to vote for, for, for Hillary Clinton, you didn't have to because she was going to win no matter what. He was going to lose no matter what. But with that election night, it just sort of woke up the, the Democratic Party uh, in a way that they've been on fire all the way since Election Day. And I use this... Uh, metaphor, I mean, back in the, the, the old Pearl, the Pearl Harbor movie, Tora, 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 and the, the, the Admiral Yamamoto character is, is on the bridge and the, the torpedo bombers are landing after the successful mission and the other naval officers are doing their equivalent of high fives. 
And Admiral Yamamoto allegedly said, you know, I feel like all we've done is awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with terrible resolve. And I think the Democratic Party got woken up with a, a, a amazing resolve after that 2016 election, and their hair's been on fire ever since. Um, and, it, and it was only the Kavanaugh nomination that kind of brought rep engaged Republicans back up to the kind of engagement in 2018 that the Democrats were, and that, you know, I think helped save them, save them the Senate. Sure, yeah. Um, and so that, put, you know, the, the implication being, like, we're on track from, you know, I mean, putting COVID and the difficulties with voting as a logistical, practical matter to one side for a moment. But is it your sense we're on track for just huge turnout, uh, perhaps record-breaking turnout? Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a, re I think notwithstanding the coronavirus and the voting problems and all that, I think we're still going to have a record high turnout. And there were signs pre-coronavirus that yeah. this was going to, this was going to happen. But so, and, and that's the other point that where I'm kind of more trusting of polls this time is the higher the turnout, the more the electorate looks like just all registered voters and the easier it is, the easier it is to poll. But, you know, the way I, my scenarios is there's, I think there's a, there's a 20% chance that Donald Trump wins the electoral college. Now built into that 20% is black swan events, foreign policy. I mean, every yeah. unknown unknown, as Don Rumsfeld used to say, goes yeah. in to get to that 20. Huh. I think there's a 40% chance of what I would call a skinny Biden win. And that is he wins all 20 of the states that Hillary Clinton carried plus DC. And then he carries the three states that Clinton lost by less by seven tenths of a point or less, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and either nothing else or nothing other than maybe Arizona. Arizona. Yeah. Nothing else is 278 uh, with Arizona uh, and the second district of Nebraska that we were talking about before the show. That uh, <laughs> gets him up to uh, 290, uh, 20 more than he needs. And then a big Biden is if he wins one or both of those other big six, in other words, Florida or North Carolina and or North Carolina, or even Biden gets into, you know, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, Texas, uh, and Georgia, Iowa, and Ohio, uh, they're basically yeah. tied races yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I mean, this is, will never happen, but, you know, you're, I'd say, Biden is ahead or within the margin of error in states with 411 electoral votes. Yeah. Now, it'll never get there. Yeah. But, but that shows you the tipping point that when you start winning a bunch of states by small margins, the, yeah, uh, no, it's, the electoral uh, vote just, just rolls up. Yeah, that's right. It's very steep uh, once, and once you get that national. Again, 411 is never going to happen. Okay? Yeah, got yeah. it. No. <laughs> Charlie yeah. Cook is not saying 411. I understood. No. Um, which of those swings, I mean, I, I've been fascinated, this could be the first cycle since oh, 1960, where Ohio does not go with the winner, if Biden wins, but, but Trump, you know, that was looking likely for a while, Ohio seems to be, the last batch of polls seems to make, looks up, you know, a lot tighter than it was. Yeah, and I, the thing is, I don't think Ohio would ever be the tipping point state, because if, if, if Joe Biden is winning Ohio, that means he's winning a whole yeah, lot of states. Yeah, yeah, that's right. but, but the thing is, I mean, I, I, it's clear that Ohio has, not, has become something other than that purple swing state that we all used to focus on. Yeah. But when you're behind 
by seven, eight, nine, ten points nationally, that brings Ohio cusp, yeah. very much into play. Yeah. And um, you know, I, 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 that that you know, there isn't a whole lot that isn't nailed down when it's up into that those yeah. reaches of a popular vote lead. So on on Trump narrow pathways, Charlie. Um, I've been looking very, very closely at state by state polls. My sense of it, there's a little bit of movement back to the president in Florida and Pennsylvania that if I was Biden, our things are looking very good, but two states, just because they're big in electoral college counts, um, the margin Biden currently has in poll averages out of both of those two states is particularly Florida, is probably a little close for comfort. Um, you know, is that your sense of, if the, because I agree, the polls just aren't, there's a lot of, not a lot of movement there to discern at all. I'm just wondering if you're seeing any tracking in, in any of these key states that suggest, you know, Trump could thread the needle here in the Electoral College? Oh, he could. That's sort of why I did the 20%, even yeah. though I don't really believe it. But, but um, uh, yeah, there are a lot... Yes, I mean, the disadvantage we have and the advantage that campaigns actually have is that they are seeing constantly polls taken by the same firms using the same methodology week in, week out. And we're seeing this grab bag of polls. Two thirds of them are garbage. Right. And, and, and the ones that are good, generally, they're not the same ones, you know, you're, you're, and it's whatever mix. So when you're looking at these averages, you know, a bunch of these are some pretty dodgy polls that are, you know, out there, but you're not looking at the same. So it, it's, it's a little jumpy, but uh, for, for, I think Florida on election night, you know, we may very well not have a call on election, an official call, yeah. but we may have clues that suggest where it's going to happen. And Florida that you mentioned might be one because notwithstanding, uh, not, notwithstanding the, all the problems of 2000, Bush Gore with uh, butterfly ballots and hanging chads and all that, Florida has really cleaned up their act in terms of the election process. Oh. And they've become faster about processing early and vote by mail votes. And they do it a lot and they've gotten good at it. And that you could see a lot more of their vote showing up earlier and showing up on election night. So that if you see, if you saw President Trump winning on a track to win Florida, that means this election is still alive. But conversely, if you see him losing Florida, I think it's game, set, match, because you have a very hard time. Biden has lots, lots of paths to 270 that don't involve Florida. There aren't any, really, for the president. If he loses Florida, it's all over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, I mean, all, uh, all Biden has to do is win the states that, that, that Democrats lost by seven-tenths of a point or less. So that's, that's you know. Yeah, not fair that's enough. That's not Florida. So. Hey, um, one thing. Sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say that, that our, 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 our house editor, David Wasserman, who's kind of our quantitative guy, you, you know, Dave. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he is pointing to there are more, there is a bigger pool of those non-college whites that were not registered that are possible for, for the president to tap into. And that there's probably more 
elasticity upwards for him there than in some of these other places. But at the same time, I think Biden is going to do a whole lot better in the suburbs outside of Philly. But, but, but David's using, he's saying that you sort of look, this is very rough, across the whole country, and it's almost like Biden seems to be doing about 1.8 percentage points better than she, better than Hillary did so many places. And given that she lost the presidency by less than 78,000 votes, uh, uh, 1.8 on top of a 2.1 margin, that's, that's, yeah. you would think would be sufficient. Yeah. To, yeah. Electoral college infelicities notwithstanding. Hey, um, look, so much to talk about. We're halfway through the hour. Um, and, and, uh, people, uh, uh, hitting us with lots of live questions. I, I do want to get to some of them. Um, Ch Charlie, one thing I do want to, this is a little bit uncharted territory for all of us, but um, so much speculation, particularly on the back of, uh, you know, that piece in the Atlantic last week um, of the, the potential for, I mean, here we are talking about the polls and this and that, and are we waiting for that? But there's this thing downstream from the polls and that is that the count is legally or extra legally usurped or the translation shall we say to be <laughs> quite euphemistic about it is uh the translation of voters preferences into certified results uh there's lots of pathways there for mischief and both legal and extra legal do you have any i mean what's your sense of that how seriously should we be taking that i mean Things are moving so quickly at the moment. You know, sort of a lot of the social media networks I'm plugged into just went into apoplexy on the back of that Atlantic piece last week. I'm just wondering, you know, in your experience and in your networks, what's the what's the appropriate sort of way to parse or even think about that general set of issues? Simon, my guess is when you were a kid, you went to you went off to camp, and yeah. you'd sit around the campfire and tell ghost stories, and <laughs> I think these are kind of the political equivalent of ghost stories that are pretty implausible, very unlikely. I don't hear, I mean, when I, I started picking up about two months ago, Democratic strategists started worrying, not that they would lose the election in terms of fewer people, you know, them, of, of Trump getting more votes, even in just the right places, but that the process would go wrong. But the focus wasn't really on, on faithless electors and, you know, state legislatures hijacking. I mean, I, I think that's kind of fanciful, but it, it's really more, you know, was the Postal Service going to get messed up? Were, were a lot of people going that have never voted by mail before not going to sign their ballots or not putting the right envelope in the right envelope in Pennsylvania and stuff. You know, it was really more process on the front end rather than on the back end. Yep. And, and this, this election would have to get a heck of a lot closer than it is and than it, that it has uh, for any of those things to be, I think, even remotely relevant. But I don't... Um, I think it's some fanciful stories by journalists rather than campaign professionals who are, are paid to think about this stuff. Uh, I, don't, I don't hear that much talk. I mean, I, I, I've heard process concern, but, but process before the election day and, and reporting on election night, not the machinations over, you know, December and, you know, early January. That is not that. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to push a little bit on that, Charlie. Like, 
because I don't know anybody saw the so-called Brooks Brothers riot of Palm Beach coming either. Uh, people were, su I was surprised by that at the time. Um, the way that the once it becomes a legal sort of drawn out vote count of, of postal ballots or whatever, that in that space that is now, it's legal, it's got this practical element on, on, on the ground element, um, 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 protesters, you know, yelling down the, 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 the recount there. Um, I'm just, those on the ground logistic factors that seem to be hard to predict, at least, you know, out of my expertise, right? Public opinion, polling, election, electoral systems, you've got this other sort of, you know, Don Rumsfeld, again, unknown <laughs> element yeah. out there. I'm just, yeah, I'm yeah, usual, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in 2000, we'd never seen anything like that before. And Democrats got caught playing by a different set of rules. They were playing by very conventional rules and that you didn't, you know, you didn't do that kind of stuff and they paid a price for it. And right now, uh, I think the odds of Democrats uh, allowing that kind of thing to go unchallenged the way they did, uh, I think is extremely unlikely. And, and you know, they may be more, more guilty of overkill than of underestimating what would happen. Uh, but, but that whole Bush Gore, what worries me is that, uh, and I don't spend a lot of time worrying about this, but uh, this country is about 10 times more partisan, more hyper-partisan than it was then. And when you look at, in that election, half of Americans were going to believe that election was stolen no matter what. And the only question was which half. And now the, 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 the partisanship is so much more intense. I mean, you know, these polls that show X percent of Democrats or Y percent of Republicans wouldn't want their son or daughter to marry someone of the yeah. other party. And I mean, just these weird, weird, weird things uh, that, that uh, didn't exist then. So I, I think we're, uh, uh, I, I worry about whether, I mean, I, I, think, I think the United States has been going through a, a massive stress test over the, over, the last, over the last four years. Right. And I think institutions have held up, quite frankly, better than I would have thought, but you don't know how much more stress it, it can take. Yeah. And, and so that kind of bothers me. But, you know, this stuff, uh, you know, some of the stuff I think is just is a little, a okay. little fancy. Okay. But, you know. um, we're burning through our time. I'm yet to ask you about Senate and House. Um, and I can't not ask Charlie Cook about Senate and House. So, well, so we can do the House in one sentence. Let's it's do that. It's not going anywhere. Okay. Yeah. So okay. let's go now. Let's go to the Senate. Okay. Now, Senate. Uh, yeah. I'm going to assume that anybody on this call is going to know all the numbers that Democrats need a net, chain, net gain of three and that they're going to lose a seat in Alabama. All, you know, but the Senate right now, at the beginning of the year, I was only putting about a one in three chance of Republicans losing, of Democrats gaining a majority in the Senate. And the reason that because they were going to lose the Alabama, they were going to have to knock off four Republican seats. Right. And the thing is, at the beginning of this year, there were only four Republican seats that even looked plausible. 
you know, Martha McSally in Arizona, Corey Gardner in Colorado, uh, Susan Collins in Maine, and Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So what's happened now? Because right now, I think it's better than 50-50 that the Senate will flip. Well, each of those four are a lot more vulnerable than they were then. And then coming online, you've got two or three more Republican seats, you know, like Joni Ernst in, in Iowa. That's become very, very close. Uh, at least one, if not both. There's a good chance, by the way, that both of those Georgia Senate races go to January 5 runoffs. Now, that'd be kind of, uh, you know, talk about horror stories. Yeah, and right. then finally, you know, you've got a, a Kansas open seat that's close. And, you know, they're just all Montana. I left out Montana. Yeah, Montana. So there, there just as there are a lot of paths for Joe Biden to get to 270, uh, particularly if Democrats only need to get to 50 uh, as opposed to 51, man, there are a lot of paths to get there. And uh, uh, I think it's more likely to help. The, and I, I think the, 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 the Supreme Court fight, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's going to be a wash on the presidential. Hmm. But in the Senate, I can see two or three Senate seats that Democrats have that their chances might be hurt and two or three Republican. I mean, I think it could have at the same yeah. simultaneous, it could have different, different angles, but, you know, nationally speaking though, uh, both sides are so, so motivated that other than, other than voting er, voting earlier or earlier in the day or trying to vote twice illegally, I'm not sure what motivation above a certain level really accomplishes. Yeah, <laughs> that was a joke, by the way, of voting more than once. So. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I was saying the the volume on this election was at eleven, and then yeah. the Supreme Court thing took it to thirteen, and you know. But but uh, interesting. Uh, we've been you know thinking a lot here about how that washes out. But let's move to some um, some questions from the um, from from the audience, if 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 we can. Um. um <laughs> this is a good question. Um, uh, Tommy Gatling here from the University of Sydney asks, are there any circumstances in which reform of the Electoral College is likely in our lifetime, Charlie? No. Okay. No, I mean, small states are never going to go along with it. Yeah. And I mean, it, it just won't, it just won't happen. I mean, there was a reason why we got this and it was a compromise that I think is never going to be broken. But the other thing though is, while I don't like the Electoral College, um, if we just went to a straight popular vote, which more or less is what people are talking about, all these candidates would do is fly around between the five or six major metropolitan areas and never see the rest of the country. And, and so there, there actually is a legitimate reason why a lot of states would be against it because they would have no voice. I mean, California, New York, I mean, it, it, they would have no voice in the, in the, in the election. And uh, I don't think they will ever stand for that. So I don't think in my lifetime, if I, if we could start from scratch, I would have the whole country do it the way Montana, the way Nebraska and Maine do, you oh. know, the congressional district gets, gets one elector, you know, whoever wins that district gets that elector, whoever wins the state, win the bonus too. And there you go. And that would incentivize candidates to run all over the country. Um, but, the thing is, it's not gonna, nothing's gonna happen, nothing. Yeah, yeah. no, I, th I think that's- Let me know when a state that voted for Donald Trump passes that compact, okay? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, look, um, we've got a few questions on this issue. And again, this is for the people that are tracking US politics very closely, if you're across this issue. Charlie, and this is, look, a bit of back and forth about, 
is Biden's support among Hispanic voters soft? Um, is that going to make a difference in some, you know, Florida is the state people talk about the most. You know, I, I see different pieces of commentary on this. I'm just wondering your assessment on that one. Is it true? How consequential is it either way? Well, something can be true, but maybe not quite as consequential as it seems, because number one, um, yes, yes, he is underperforming what he should you know, among Hispanics, uh, particularly male, Hispanic male men uh, in, in Florida and to a certain extent in Texas, but not so much in, in Arizona. That's true. And if that were the only demographic that was voting, then that'd be a big problem for Joe Biden. But you see other groups that are substantially larger and vote at much larger rates that he is overperforming. And, you know, like college educated suburban, you know, I mean, so if you want to isolate one thing, yes, but th this election has a whole lot of moving parts. And that, that this group has, along with very young people, the lowest voter turnout rate in the, in the country. So um, I'm not sure you know, and, and, and like, you know, Biden is doing better among the oldest group, which is a very high turnout group, particularly right. in Florida. Right, right. Hey, um, I, I've got to ask this question. This comes from uh, a guy here, Luke Mancillo, who's um, PhD, uh, I'm, I'm co-supervising. Um, and I've got to sneak this one in, uh, Charlie. Um, if you could get American high school students to learn one piece of political science, what would it be? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh wow! I wish you'd tip me off on that one. Sorry, I know. Yeah, put you on the I'm spot. I have to think Sorry. about that. Just came in this morning. I just give them. But uh, uh, I tell you what, the kind of current frame of mind I'm in is explain to them the electoral college. Well, oh. I don't know. I'm trying to decide between federalism. Uh, that'd be a good one. Yep. Separation of powers. That'd be kind of nice. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is, we've back we've we've stuffed our curricula with so many interesting novel courses that some of the basics of citizenship is uh are, are being you know getting short shrift but it, yeah it's shocking how little a lot of people know i mean gosh there was a survey years ago about you know a shockingly high percentage of people of americans thought the supreme court was part of congress yeah i mean i mean really <laughs> Um, the institutions, are, yeah, are the, are the important things. People come and go, but the institutions stay and understanding those is, is so important, understanding why we get the politics we get. Um, and Charlie, look, I've also got to ask, um, you know, we're a US study center, um, American foreign policy, America's standing in the world, America's appetite for global leadership and multilateralism. These are questions that are our bread and butter down here. I'm just wondering, you know, stepping away from a election prognostication and the issues we've been talking about, can you give us a read of, you know, the two pathways that are open to the U.S. after this election, one under a, a Trump re-elect and the other under a Biden administration with, there's so much going on in the U.S. at the moment. It is yet, you know, it's still in the midst, deep in the midst of, of COVID. What will America's priorities be and where does foreign policy land in those priorities under either election scenario in, in, in your assessment, Charlie? 
It's interesting. I, I had this conversation, uh, Zoom conversation with a group of uh, institu European institutional investors, money managers earlier year, earlier this week or last week. And, and uh, you know, it's the thing is, in the absence of the coronavirus, I think that if Biden won, Air Force One, they'd be having to replace Air Force One a lot sooner. <laughs> I mean, because he would just be all over the world trying to rebuild alliances and repair damage and all like that. But with the coronavirus, with the economy, piecing the economy back together, uh, that, that, would be, that would be very hard to do. And the question is, how long would it take the United States to regain, or could we ever regain the confidence, the trust uh, of of, of, of of many of our allies around the world. And I realize ever is like a really long time, but just, you know, in our lifetimes, are we ever gonna see it? And my hunch is probably not, but um, uh, that doesn't mean you don't try. But I, I think you could imagine, I mean, Joe Biden's passion is foreign policy. It really is. If you read that, I'm sure you've probably already read that Jules Whitcover biography of him. You, he just loves, he lives and breathes it. But uh, that's, I wouldn't say it's a luxury item, but there's, he's going to have a lot on his plate. And yep. so that won't be as dominant as it would be if he had been become president four, eight or 12 uh, years ago. But, but it's going to be trying to rebuild alliances. But um, we've, we've, uh, we've been discredited a lot. Uh, and frankly, the coronavirus and our, uh, horrible handling of it has just made it a lot worse. I mean, it, it uh, countries that, that should have had a much harder time dealing with it than we have, have done better. And uh, I, I think, I think, it, I think actually, I think people abroad actually appreciate that more than Americans do, you know, that, uh, yeah. you know, 5% of the world's population and 20% of the deaths, really? I mean, when you've got some of the finest healthcare institutions in the world, uh, you know, you hear the 25% of the cases, but to me, it's the 20% of the world deaths. Yeah. Uh, God, and that reflects so badly on our institution and where you got to think that there's some folks in the Kremlin that are just smiling that the U.S. has been taken down uh, to the extent that it has by a whole lot of things in the last few years. Um. I, I'm so glad we, we got those reflections in. Um, Ten minutes to go. I, I, I want to just get to as many questions as I can before I hand back to, to Bruce. Sure. Uh, you know Stephen loosely, I presume, through the probably through the through your um, uh, the dialogue um, on occasion. Yeah. Stephen, of course, uh, a Labor Party senator here in Australia yeah. and a and a um, non-resident fellow with us here at the U.S. Study Center. Um, and Stephen asked Charlie, uh, do the debates matter? Best wishes, <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> you know, I think, and you, you've studied American politics for a long time too. I think the last time a debate altered an outcome was 1960, Kennedy-Nixon. I mean, really, that was also the last time a, running, a vice presidential running mate mattered too. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but there is a pattern. There's a pattern of incumbent presidents being overconfident, ill-prepared, and screwing up in the first debate, and then regaining their footing in the last two. Uh, I think there's a very, very clear pattern of that. Uh, but the, 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 the Trump folks have, have, 
I think they've convinced themselves that Joe Biden has dementia, that he's senile. And when you, when you talk or email with you, you, you get the sense that they're fully expecting a debate for Joe Biden to have drool coming down his chin throughout the debate. And, you know, out in Iowa, I, I'd be watched him and we all watched the debates and we watched, you know, it's like, really? Um, you know, and, and they, have, they have really lowered expectations for him. But I think the president is over, I think he's way overconfident. And when I, when I started reading and hearing that he's doing very little debate prep and was, was making fun of Biden for debate prep, I, 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 I'm, I'm speechless. And particularly given that the first debate Tuesday night, it's uh, uh, Chris Wallace is doing the interviewing and he may be from Fox, but he's a hell of a journalist. And as you remember, uh, that July interview of his yeah. on Fox News Sunday, that was one of the most, for an elected official, one of the most horrible interviews I have ever seen with, with, with a journalist. And that it, 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 if I had, if I were a Trump supporter, I think that Sunday morning, I think I'd have lost my breakfast watching it. I mean, it was that bad. And then he did it again yeah. uh, with Axios with an Australian yeah. uh, a couple weeks later with John Swan. So I, I uh, you know, they're counting on a debate turning this thing around. And A, I don't think it will. But B, yeah, well, I mean, I don't think Biden could get a whole lot. I don't think his league could get a whole lot bigger. So if the president was really as bad with this one as he was with Wallace back in July, I'm not sure. I don't know that that 40-42% would, would, would defect from him. But, but I do think that his ability losing that, I mean, the most compelling reason for Donald Trump's reelection was the economy. I mean, that was the... And so I don't think he's encountered a headwind like you would think an incumbent president might, given an economic downturn. No, that hadn't happened. But it's the loss of that tailwind and that you had a group of these swing voters middle, again, not the base, that they, they thought the economy is doing great and they gave him all the credit in the world. But they did have concerns about him as a person, his truthfulness, his unwillingness to listen to experts. I mean, all these things about his leadership style, but the strong economy was kept in yeah, keeping yeah, those yeah. concerns in catch. And, 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 and the loss of that economy. And then just uh, where I think, you know, you see consistently 55 to 60% of Americans not only disapprove the, the job he's doing on handling the coronavirus, but uh, you know, 45, 48% strongly disapproving yeah. of, of it. And, 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 and the president's advantage over Biden on the economy that used to be like this, I mean, it's still higher, but just barely. And his yeah. approval on handling the economy isn't a whole lot higher than his disapproval. So yeah. he's lost the, the tailwind that I think was, was keeping him from getting blown away before. Yeah. Hey, um, just, you know, one thing I've been, a line I've been using a lot in media is any day that Donald Trump is not having to defend his record on COVID is a better news cycle for him than the one it might have, he might have been having. Is that true for this tax return story? <laughs> um, well, I just, first of all, I don't think the 40-42, and this has to do a lot with uh, media habits in this country. Cool. The 40-42% are not watching 
uh, networks <laughs> or news that is that are will give this story a whole lot of play. Right. And so uh, he's just absolutely his numbers are impervious to any bad news whatsoever. Yeah. But at the same time, good news never helped him. I mean, when you have six consecutive months of 50 year yeah. low unemployment and your numbers still never crack 50, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's like hitting the, hitting the accelerator on the car and nothing's happening. It's a really it's good point, Charlie. It's a really good point. So often we focus on how the negatives didn't drive, you know, that's the thing we get in Australia a lot. I, I, the number of times I get asked, how is it that for, Trump can have 40% approval? Um, and then, but the, you know, given all the bad stuff he does, but well, I think you're absolutely right. How has he only got 40 given how strong the economy was? That's right. Waiting, waiting for his numbers, I mean, to, to fall, they have to rise. Right. And they never rose. Yeah. And this is like waiting for your pre-shrunk genes to shrink. <laughs> They're not going to. I mean, they, they can't. Yeah. And, and waiting for someone at 40, 42 to drop yeah. uh, in this kind of hyper-partisanship, no, they can't yeah. drop. But they don't get you, that didn't get you reelected either, though. I love pre-shrunk genes. I'm adding that to the uh, list of metaphors I'm appropriating from Charlie Cook. Well done. But uh, well, You're not going to get wisdom, so you might as well get some good lines. <laughs> uh, two little uh, data points I'll throw in before handing back to Bruce, and that is um, Donald Trump's approval ratings. Not only is the level low, but the variance is low. Over the course of his presidency, we've never seen a president since you know, FDR was the first time Gallup started measuring that systematically. Um, the, the, the amount of range in his numbers, we've never seen a more stable set of numbers. And that's largely a, a function of the insane partisan polarization, which has just gotten greater and greater with every president. Um, and then the second data point, Charlie, is um, related to that. And it's portent for the election. Uh, is, a, is a low level of undecided voters. Uh, uh, it was very high in 16 and a lot of late breakers going for Trump. Well, but, to um, your point on the range, he, the highest gallop he's had is 49. The lowest is 35. So it's a 14 point range. That's wider than any of the other polls and twice as wide as say the ABC Washington Post poll. But in Fox, let's just go with Fox, 48, 38. Yeah. That's it. NBC a nine point range, uh, uh, as was CNN. And as I remember, NBC Wall Street Journal is nine yeah. and ABC Post is seven. We're, it, it doesn't go above this. It doesn't go below that. But that lack of elasticity is what tells me that there's not a lot of resilience there. But with the low undecided, the question I would ask is, I, I would love to see the pollsters go back and find this 5% or in one poll we saw today, 2% yeah, undecided yeah. to see, did, do they end up voting at all? Yeah. Good. I think anybody's undecided at this point. <laughs> I think their likelihood of voting is very, very low. I mean, who, who the heck could be undecided? Yeah. I mean, you could love him, you could loathe him, but, but how do you be undecided? I mean, yeah. about this public figure over any other that we've ever seen. So I don't, um, in any poll that's got undecideds over 10, I, I think it's, it's, nah. it's, it's, it's trash can material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm going to throw back to Bruce. Charlie, uh, thank you. Throw back to Bruce. I mean, this is so much fun. 
Let's do it again. We'll do a post-election. That'd be, hell, if you're offering, I'm, I'm saying yes, thanks, Charlie. Got Fantastic. It. Got it. Uh, election. Figure first. out how to wait, get me a case of VB or Crown Lager, okay? Zach, you're on. You're on. Easy. Bruce, you're on mute, Bruce. Demute. All right. Charlie, one last question from me. Uh, and from my dear friend Steve Coffin in Colorado. Is there a road back for Trump whereby... It just since 2018, people want to put a check on him, put the House back in Democratic hands. What about putting the Senate back in Democratic hands? And then I think about the Montana, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia. And they do that, but they say, but we'll have Trump so we can keep him under better control, but we get the best of what Trump can give the country. Is that a scenario? I think Repub Senate Republicans see that. I think that's the closing argument is you have is is sort of this implication that president trump is going to lose and that republicans are not going to get the house back so the only thing between between us and democrats running the entire government is the republican senate and i think that's going to be their closing argument they're not sure if it will work but they believe that is the best case, the best argument they but they can't do it to they've got to do it carefully because they can't say they expect President Trump to lose because his base would go crazy, but you could kind of dance around it and 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 say, uh, do you want, you know, what Democrats did in ninety three ninety four after Bill Clinton was elected and Democrats already had the House and Senate, where you know Democrats basically loaded up in a car and drove off a cliff like Thelma and Louise. Uh, which they did again in 2009 and 10 after Obama won and Democrats already had their majority. I can see the pain look on your face, Bruce. Anyway, where <laughs> Democrats do another Thelma and Louise, but Republicans evened it out in 2017 and 18 by loading up their own car and going off a different cliff. So the, the question is, if, if, is, can Republicans use that argument? And if Democrats do win all three, have they learned anything? from the past is because, you know, Joe Biden, this isn't his first rodeo. He's been around Washington politics for 48 years. Nancy Pelosi has been around for a long time. I think she had a front row seat for, for some of these. Um, and Chuck Schumer's nobody's fool. Uh, I, I think the question is, would they approach this any different than they approached it in the past? And would Joe Biden's age and the fact that he may or may not run, seek a second term, does that give him more freedom to not worry about a liberal challenge from the left? Or does that make him even more in a hurry to do as much as he can any way he can, which is what most new presidents do anyway? Does it, does it hurt? I mean, you could make two different argu opposing arguments and I have no idea what, which would happen under those circumstances. Fair enough. Fair enough. Charlie, thank you for me and Simon. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yep. We'll see you again. See you after the election.